Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch. The skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this, AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy. We keep working because there's always another level to attain. And each time we set our sights on that next level, we're saying there's something wrong with me. There's something that I'm lacking. There's some deficit that I have. And there's something wrong with other people who aren't striving to that next level as well. And so you're constantly leaving people behind. I think that it is really important to start to notice all the things that we do on a daily basis that are in, in essence, working on ourselves in order to go to work and be a better worker or a better business owner or a better freelancer. And how much that mediates our sense of identity such that we only see ourselves through transactional terms. And that, again, is profoundly self-alienating and it's also unsatisfying. And so we get back into this pattern over and over again. I'm Srini Rao, and this is the Unmistakable Creative Podcast, where you get a window into the stories and insights of the most innovative and creative minds who've started movements, built thriving businesses, written best-selling books, and created insanely interesting art. For more, check out our 500-episode archive at unmistakablecreative.com. Tara, welcome to the Unmistakable Creative. Thanks so much for taking the time to join us. Absolutely, Srini. I'm so excited to be here. It is my pleasure to have you here. I mean, you and I go way back. I mean, I think you were one of our guests, you know, prior to our rebrand as Unmistakable Creative. I think this is probably the third or fourth time you and I have spoken on the show. So I think that just says a whole hell of a lot about your work. And I've been watching the stuff you've been writing on Medium very closely, thinking, yeah, she's saying a lot of stuff that really needs to be heard. But before we get into all of that, um, I want to start by asking you, what social group were you a part of in high school and what impact did that end up having on your life and where you've ended up? That is such a brilliant question. What social group was I part of? Um, I was a band nerd and that is definitely how I would identify my social group as well. Um, I think everyone that I hung out with was in band, uh, mm -hmm. maybe orchestra, but mostly band. Um, and same in college as well, for the most part, although in college it, it got a little slightly more diverse. Mm -hmm. But um, in high school, it was the band. And how did that influence me? <sighs> you know, band kids are odd 
in that we are, we, we simultaneously think we are very cool and are also very self-aware about not being cool at all. <laughs> and, <laughs> and I think that that is pretty much like how I would sum up if not how I feel about myself, like where I fall in society. It's like there's a level of coolness here. There's a level of like awareness of being, uh, of wanting to be cool mm-hmm. and and striving to be cool maybe. But then there's also like a, a very clear self-awareness that I am not cool. I will never be cool. The things that I think are cool are not things that other people think are cool <laughs> and kind of constantly riding that edge of cool, not cool. Does that answer yeah, the question? Yeah, no, well, you okay. know that I'm a band geek too, right? I think I knew that. Yes. Saxophone? Yeah. Uh, tuba for nine years, tuba. which is like as uncool as it gets. I mean, well, I had a, a friend who serenaded his prom date uh, with his soprano sax. He played the, the Kenny G song Forever in Love, which is like the most beautiful thing ever. I was like, man, serenading somebody with a tuba is basically a guarantee that you're not going to get laid, let alone even have a date for prom. Yeah. I mean, I played trombone, so I feel you on the low brass um just not coolness of it. Yeah. Uh, however, being a woman uh, in the low brass section, I think is very different than being a dude in the low brass section. Yeah. I mean, so the funny thing is you talk about this later on in the book about the sort of cultural systemic validation spiral. And mm-hmm. you say it's also the very goals we organize our lives around as an elder millennial, my childhood was organized around getting into a good college. A wave of my validation spiral started by saying yes to the pursuit of excellent grades and enriching extracurricular activities. AP English, yes. AP Latin, you bet. Independent study, music theory, sure. Wind ensemble, Latin club, jazz combo, drum major in the marching band. Yes, 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 and yes. Um, So I wonder, you know, how one that sort of influenced the career choices that you made, because as an Indian American, I can relate to that. I mean, it was kind of a given that we would go to college and, you know, we mm-hmm. padded our resumes with extracurricular activities. And, you know, it was just like you go to the best college you can get into. Like, I can't even fathom the concept of trying to explain what it would be like to not go to college to my parents because it's just that was never on the table. Yeah. Um, you know, I think for me. I don't Man, so I would say that there there were a bunch of different influences in my life that shaped all of those yeses in my own validation spiral or spirals. Um, and also there was, I think, the kind of cultural milieu in which I was existing. So I come from a what I now understand is a working class background. My mother was a seamstress. My dad was a cop. Um, and they were divorced by the time I was 10 or 11. Um, and so that said, they were almost like there was a certain sort of social class regression that happened in my family. And I don't say that in a disparaging way at all. Um, but, you know, my grandmother had gone to college. All my uncles had gone to college. My mom's family, not so much, um, but her dad was a big, successful farmer um, in a, a couple counties over. And so the fact that we were kind of existing in this 
lower middle class, working class kind of environment was, I, I think there was an expectation that I would, you know, help climb things back up the ladder, right? And mm-hmm. so while I don't think that the expectation of going to college was is nearly the same as in what the kind of experience that you describe, I do think that there was just sort of a, you know, there was sort of more of a tacit expectation that, well, this is obviously what's going to happen. Tara's smart. Yeah. Tara's with it. She's going to go to college. She's going to get a good job. Um, but at the same time, there was a lack of knowledge around what going to college actually looked like for someone who was going to finish and then hopefully go get a good job. Um, and there was a lack of sort of the social awareness of how relationships, how, how networks kind of uh, propel someone forward. And so by the time I got to college, I did well and I was doing, you know, I, I was excelling at college, but I wasn't using college in the way that I now understand I quote unquote should have been uh, to create uh, the opportunities for myself after college that would have been great. Right. Yeah. And so um I just had, I felt like a fish out of water when I graduated. And I, and I know that, you know, lots of people feel that way. But once I was out and the, like the next step was not just right in front of me to say yes to, when I finally had choices about what to do next, I realized just how much I didn't know how to make those choices. <laughs> yeah. And so that went back into that validation spiral where it's just like, well, I need someone to to give me a yes on a job and then I'll get promoted and I'll get promoted and I'll get promoted. And it wasn't so much a conscious decision of this is where I want to be. This is what I want to be doing so much as it was looking for that validation that, yes, I'm skilled and I'm talented and I can make this life work in one way or another. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems, too like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. 
Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. As creators, we're always on the move. Whether it's a live podcast event, a pop-up shop, or a workshop, we're constantly interacting with community, and that's where Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe comes in. Imagine this, you're at a live event, a listener loves your merch, or a participant wants to sign up for your course on the spot. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, you can accept their payments right there and then, right from your iPhone so there's no extra hardware or no delays. Total game changer. It's not just for creators. Any business owner can do this. It's about making transactions smoother and much more personal, growing your business in your way. We've been using Stripe for our products and courses for a long time, and now with Tap to Pay on iPhone, you can take your business to the next level too. So visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone to learn more. Remember folks, with tap to pay on iPhone and Stripe, your business is always at your fingertips. Yeah. Well, it's it's funny. I, I, I mean, I don't, I'm probably butchering the exact quote. It's like, you know, they say college is wasted on the young or, or the youthful. <laughs> and I, I think that a lot of us look back at that because I looked at Berkeley and think to myself, like, wow, what a different experience it would be if I knew what I knew now and yeah. went back there. Um, I mean, for, for younger people listening to this and, and parents listening to this, I mean, how do you think they should approach this, uh, in terms of, you know, make, being in a position to make the decisions that you felt you weren't really ready to make, uh, or weren't, you know, educated enough to make when you were in college? Yeah. I mean, I think about this all the time because my daughter just turned 14, which is insane. Um, <laughs> but, you know, she's thinking about college now. You know, she's thinking about what volunteer activities can I add and what classes should I be taking? And, and you know, is this going to look good on a college application? And that's a whole other component of the validation spiral. Yeah. Yes, at 14. And it's been this way. And since she was about 11, I would say, is when she started worrying about college. Wow. Um, that was new. That was very new to me. I mean, I would say I was thinking about college when I was 11 or 12, but not in the way that she was. It was, it was very much, I don't know if you're familiar with Anne Helen Peterson's work around millennials and burnout, mm-hmm. um, but she describes how um, both kind of starting with the millennial generation and then accelerating into Generation Z, um, that we've started to see our kids as resumes and how do you take this kid and make them the best resume that they can and of course our kids are internalizing that message as well um and i see that with her completely and part of me is just like i don't know I, you know even with my positioning and what i've done and what i know 
I don't know that I know how to kind of talk her through rethinking that. But to your question, um, I think the the most important thing that I would tell her now, knowing what I now know now, but without pushing her in a particular direction, is to make use of as many of the resources as whatever school she is in at whatever time, you know, whether it's high school, um, whether it's college, whether it's graduate school later on, whether it's some professional program somewhere. That's what I didn't know how to do. I knew how to get good grades. I knew how to write good papers. I knew how to do all of the things that can be measured in college. But I didn't know to make an appointment with my advisor on a regular basis and talk to them about what my options were and and what I should be thinking about if, you know, if I say if I want to go to grad school or if I want to go to um a you know, I want to go into a different kind of field, maybe I want to change fields later on. You know, what should I be thinking about? I didn't know to do that. I didn't know to go to the career office. I didn't know to go to the networking events that every college campus has with alumni, right? I didn't know any of that. And so I got all these good grades. My my advisors loved me. My department loved me. But I got out of school not understanding the sort of the machinations that were happening under the surface that while there are there is some problematic stuff in that as well there's also a lot of like really positive cultural and societal learning that happens outside of the classroom um that happens when you're building relationships with alumni or with advisors or with just other administrators on campus mm-hmm. um and so that's the thing that I want my daughter to know. It's the thing that I wish I knew. And it's the thing that, you know, as I'm starting to think like, maybe it is time to go back to grad school now. Um, That's the thing that I'm like, all right, I'm going to choose a grad program that is going to allow me to really take advantage of those kinds of resources. And, And thinking about graduate school in that way, in addition to thinking about, you know, making it as fun for my intellectual mind as possible too. Yeah. Um, well, you know, I want to get into the core ideas in the book, but there's something you said in the book uh, at the very beginning. And, you know, this made me want to ask you uh, a question related to a Medium article, right? You said that I can't remember a time when I didn't feel a fundamental brokenness about who I am. I can't remember a time or place when I felt like I belonged to any group or community. I often don't feel at home in my closest relationships. I'm always on edge trying to figure out what others want from me and hopelessly trying to contort myself into that shape. This unease has played me throughout my life. And I know from uh, having read a Medium article, you were recently diagnosed with autism. Mm-hmm. And what I, I wonder, one, what that does for your sense of identity, uh, in particularly this late in life. And, and clearly, like my perceptions of autism are off because I've talked to you probably a half a dozen times. I think I've even met you in person once or twice. I mm-hmm. would have never guessed in a million years that you would be anywhere near on the spectrum. Yeah, so there's so much <laughs> to unpack in that question. Um so for me autism and my identity um there's a great paper by a sociologist named Catherine Tan that studied uh the effects on identity of late diagnosed autistic people. 
And she refers to the phenomenon as biographical illumination. And I freaking love that term, biographical illumination. And what she means by that is while there are some sorts of diagnoses, um, especially like terminal illness, where it marks a separation from there was the before the diagnosis to after the diagnosis, and, and there's a disruption in your sense of identity with autism and with some other conditions as well. And so, you know, just some other realizations. Um, it gives you an opportunity to shine a new light. So the illumination part on the whole rest of your life. So there's a, there's a sense that. An, almost an acknowledgement that, yeah, I didn't under fully understand my identity and my relationships and my place in the world until I learned this thing about myself. And once I learned that thing about myself, everything that happened before suddenly has new meaning and makes new sense. That's not to say that it's all good, right? Mm -hmm. There's still a lot of pain and a lot of frustration that's embedded in those experiences, but understanding them better is, uh, creates a profound feeling of relief. And so that's what that's what the sociologist was really talking about. And that's my experience completely. Like as soon as I saw this paper, I was like, yes, that's it. Uh, it explains so much. Um, and so part of what you mentioned around the profound brokenness and the feeling uh, like I don't belong is without that not without that particular piece of self-knowledge, mm -hmm. it's really hard to relate to other people um, in a way that doesn't reinforce that sense of brokenness just in that, you know, you know, you're not thinking about things the way other people are. You suspect you're not. The suspicion is just as disorienting as actually knowing that you're not thinking about things the way other people are. Um, it's. Yeah, it, it, the other piece that you picked up on there with sort of the self monitoring, that's I've been thinking about that a lot lately and just the amount of energy that I expend thinking about what other people need in every moment. And that's certainly not, um, you know, it's not, it's not just autism. There are all sorts of other experiences and conditions that can create that sense and that need for self-monitoring as well. But for me, it's, constantly trying to figure out, am I answering this question correctly? Is my face making a weird expression? Because it does that often. Um, am I being rude? Have I forgotten something that I was supposed to remember? Like, there's just all of this stuff that I'm constantly looking for anytime that I'm relating to someone. And the fact that, you know, you and I have talked many times and met in person and that you would have never suspected that I was autistic goes to show how good at that I got. Right. <laughs> and, and that's, that's a, that is an actual documented thing, especially among uh, women who are autistic diagnosed later in life with no mental or with no intellectual impairment um, that they are, we are 
exceptionally good at what we call masking. And masking Mm. comes from that self-monitoring. Well, if you're constantly masking, if you're constantly camouflaging as the other, the other term that's used, the, it only follows that you're going to have a sense of alienation from yourself and from others as well. And so it's not just that I don't feel like I belong in a room of crowded people or that I don't feel like I belong in a small group of close friends. It is often that I feel like I don't entirely belong in my own brain as well because anytime I'm relating to someone else, anytime I'm thinking about what I want, where, you know, what I'm going to do the next day, it is hard to switch off that masking and that self-monitoring to actually get down to some some more core identity. Um, and yeah, and that's it's it's energy intensive, it's mm-hmm. emotionally exhausting, it's mentally exhausting. Um, and it really starts to take a toll on your identity. Adding that that self-knowledge in though makes it easier to make sense of things. It makes it easier for me to say, Oh, I'm, I'm like fixating. I'm ruminating on the self-monitoring again, or, Oh, I'm only worried about what somebody else is thinking about me in this conversation. And I really need to think about what I'm, what I want to say and how I want to communicate. Um, and so it's just easier to name it. And that doesn't necessarily mean it's easier to stop doing it. But when I can name it, at least I have awareness that what I'm doing isn't necessarily me. It is just what I'm doing in that moment. Does that make sense? Yeah, it makes complete sense. So it's funny because when you you mentioned sort of this profound sense of relief, I kind of, you know, can relate when I, you know, got an ADHD diagnosis as official. Mm-hmm. I was like, okay, cool. That makes a lot of sense. And it's funny because you know, I, and I've mentioned this before, people are like, oh, wow, you're, you're really good at listening because you do this. And and then, you know, you put me in a social situation. People are like, you're a fucking horrible listener, dude. Like <laughs> you don't listen for shit. And, I'm, and I finally realized like, I, particularly in a dating context, this has happened enough times where I'm just like, okay. And I realized what it is like for some reason, you put me behind the microphone that changes completely. Like mm-hmm. when I'm in this context, the moment you change that context, it's like back to, you know, I have a million things to say and I can't say them quickly enough. And in my mind, I, I had a friend who said, she's like, you're like, the, you'd be the worst therapist ever. Cause you're basically like, you're done processing whatever we're trying to tell you and you're ready to move on. And I'm like, yeah, that's why I'm not a fucking life coach. Cause I would make you cry. <laughs> Cause yes. I don't really give a shit about your problems. I'm only interested in solving them. Um, but, you know, it, it, it's funny because I, I, I totally relate to that whole sense of like, oh, that explains so much about the past. Yeah. Well, and what you said about context and social context, um, making it easier or harder to do these things, I also super relate to. Um, there's a, a fairly significant segment of adult autistic women um, that are that find themselves sort of in the performing professions, right? So whether that's professional speaker, comedian, um, actress, uh, you know, whatever the performance ends up being, and that can be defined very, very broadly, um, the context in a performance is so very 
clear, that you know exactly how you're supposed to behave, you know what you're supposed to say, you know how to carry yourself. And there is something that feels, um, there's something comfortable in that. And there's also something that it's nice to be able to kind of take a break from constantly figuring things out and just be in that context. And so I very much fall into that same category as well. Whereas when we get on for an interview, whether I'm interviewing you or you're interviewing me, I know exactly what my role is and what's expected of me in that. And so I feel really comfortable. If I'm on a stage and I'm giving a talk or I'm teaching a workshop, I know exactly what's expected of me and I feel really comfortable in that role. Um, But if I go to a conference and I'm in the crowd with people before I've spoken, I will go mute because I am so, uh, there's, it's, I'm overstimulated. I don't know, I don't know what other people know about me. But as soon as I'm on the stage and then as soon as I get off the stage, I feel comfortable because there's, I know that the people that I'm talking to know something about me and the context feels more, um, productive for me and more comfortable for me than when I don't know what's going on and what, who knows what, and you know, what's expected of me in any given moment. Yeah. I guess that, that actually explains why I try to limit myself to one interview a day, because I think that mm-hmm. my bandwidth after this is like just done. It, you know, totally. I, I realized if I do more than one, the quality suffers. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss plushcare.com slash weight loss. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. 
from ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. So let's get into the book. I mean, what, what prompted this book? Because I think that you know, just the way you open the book itself, which we'll get into, really kind of got me thinking. And I've been thinking about this a lot, too, because, you know, I, my friend Michael calls me the no bullshit personal development guy. And I'm like, basically, I'm saying a lot of personal development is bullshit. So I don't know how that makes me the no bullshit guy. But um, I kind of felt like you were echoing a lot of what I was thinking when I started to read this book. Yeah. So, I mean, there's all sorts of things going on that ended up in creating the sort of the body of work that then turned into this book. Um, one of them was that sort of profound realization that I had been kind of just moving from goal to goal to goal without, not only without necessarily achieving or feeling like I had achieved the thing I wanted to achieve, even though I was meeting goals as I went, um, but also feeling like there wasn't any added meaning in my life. There wasn't any, there wasn't any substance underneath the surface. Um, and so there was, there was that realization and sort of the, the questions about, well, what does that mean about me personally? What does that mean about the world? What does that, like, it was just a very unmoored feeling. Um, so there was that. Uh, there was also sort of the big political wake up that happened um, in 2016 and thinking about how much of the dynamics of that moment were embedded in the way I thought about the world, even if I didn't like it. Um, and so a really big sh uh, kind of shake up and, and thinking about what my values really were and, and how I could get back to them. That was part of that as well. Um, and, and sort of re-envisioning my work through those values. Mm -hmm. um, and then there was sort of uh, the, the process of re-engaging with my own work and the, and the way I work in a different way that allowed me to create this framework that the book is based around both a deconstruction framework and constructing a new framework around goal setting. And when I started sharing that with people, they were like, you know, the response to that was, was really, I don't, I keep using the word profound, but it was profound, right? There was this, uh, complete recognition of, you know, my story might be different than your story is different than this other person's story. Our goals all might be different. Our values all might be different. What we, our vision for our lives might be different, but there, 
I, I realized how much people were um, tired of goal setting and tired of striving and tired of constantly trying to achieve something new or or finally feel validated, finally feel worthy that I realized this was work that I really needed to pursue to um, some sort of end, some sort of conclusion. And so the book is that. So it's kind of, I would say there's other things going on there too, but those are three of the big threads that came together um, yeah. in the process of writing this. Yeah. And so you open the book by saying our cultural, our culture is obsessed with goals, achievement, growth, change, improvement. For a long time, I shared that obsession. But about five years ago, I started to question whether the goals I set and the constant impulse to strive for more genuinely served me. And so it sounds like that really is the beginning of deconstruction. And I mean, mm -hmm. it's funny, right? Because what do people do? They listen to shows like this to hear people like you Taught, you know, give them insight on how they can accomplish the goals they want to accomplish or live the lives they want to live. So there's kind of an irony in, in all of that. Um, and talk to me about that. I mean, you know, obviously this has been like just kind of pervasive in self-improvement, this sort of endless focus on goal setting. It's like, I remember, yeah, there's a point where like, if we were going to pick up a book, it's like, I need to get a tangible outcome from this book of some sort, or it's not mm -hmm. worth reading. Yeah. Yeah. So there is there's a lot of um tension there i think that was the word that you used we exist in a culture that is motivated and inspired by constant growth and it is baked into every component of our lives, both individually and societally. So if we're thinking about an individual career, we are, you know, we're in a story about constant growth there. If it's a business or the economy, we're in a story about constant growth there. If it's uh, political movements, there's a story about constant growth there. It's just everywhere, right? And it's part of uh, the larger story that capitalism tells, that neoliberalism tells, that individualism tells, and that supremacy culture tells as well. This need for growth, this need to be constantly conquering, striving, adventuring, uh, pioneering, right? Like these are all words that we've come to associate with the right thing to do, right? The the shoulds and the supposed tos, as I talk about them in the book. And within that, though, I think that on it, you know, when we start to interrogate whether constant growth is necessary, whether it's desired, whether it's sustainable, most of us can very quickly come to the conclusion, well, you know, growth can be good. Growth is nice. And also like constant growth doesn't seem, that doesn't seem right. <laughs> you know, the, the cliche uh, about, you know, constant, uh, that cancer is the, the result of constant growth. Right. Mm -hmm. and, and if we look at culture and, and the economy through that lens, we can see that sort of proverbial cancer everywhere. Um, but it's in our own lives as well. And part of that striving, part of that need for constant growth turns into also a need for conformity because the way you get ahead is to 
fill the role better than the person before you. The way you make more money is to create the marketing message that resonates with the most people. The, you know, and so there's this, um, kind of totalizing effect that as we set goals, we are actually becoming more and more like each other. Uh, but in the like each other, that is the, um, sort of stereotypical, uh, you know, executive in the corner office kind of, of person. And that person in our culture has a certain gender. It has a certain race. It has a certain uh, educational background. And the, the fewer of those things that the fewer of those boxes that we tick off, the more kinds of goals that we start to set for ourselves or the more we worry about the things that we're not ticking off on those boxes. Um, and so we either conform, conform, conform until we burn out, have a, you know, a, a kind of a, a, disassociation experience or we're just starting to become like everybody else which you know is not great um so so there is that that tension um and it's hard my husband and I were just talking about this the other day it's really hard to extricate yourself from those stories because those stories are it's the water we swim in, right? Mm -hmm. It is everything about our culture is, is reinforcing these stories all the time. And I know that kind of sounds, I always get nervous that I'm, I'm sounding a, like a conspiracist and I, I don't want to sound like a conspiracist. I think it's largely unintended. Um, but the un, the lack of intention is exactly what makes it so easy to forget that it's happening. And um, and so kind of for me, you, you mentioned, you know, having one takeaway from the 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 book or or the, you know, the idea that a book is only worth reading if it has a, a concrete takeaway. My concrete takeaway is sort of a question or it's a it's an imperative to just constantly be thinking about what is the story that I'm telling myself? And is that the story that I want to live in? You know, is this a story of constant growth? And is that the story I want to live in? Is this a story of conformity? And is that the story I want to live in? What is going on um, underneath the surface that's driving my personal motivation, that's driving the goals that I set, that's driving my need to strive and achieve? And is that serving me? And if it's not, how can I tell a different story while understanding that we still live in the world that we live in and we live in the culture that we live in? Yeah. Wow. <laughs> um, yeah. I mean, so, you know, it, uh, there's just a, a couple of clips I wanted to bring back from the episodes when I'm bringing them up here. But while that's happening, um, I mean, there's got to be a, a way to break this, right? And I think you're absolutely right because to your point, this is the world that we live in. And, mm -hmm. you know, we live in a world in which, you know, you have to be defined by something. And, you know, often, you know, as you even talk about in the book, like we basically are quantified by our whatever, you know, sort of economic value we mm -hmm. are able to produce. Um, and, and so, you know, I think that, 
that to me has has been one of those things that I've spent a lot of time thinking about. So one thing, you know, I, I think about often is whether sort of, you know, people like you and I, despite the best intentions, like we have planted seeds of dissatisfaction where there were none before by mm-hmm. doing the kind of work that we do, because we're making people aware of, you know, one way to live. And it, it, I always go back to this idea of like, who's to say the person who works a nine to five job, you know, collecting a paycheck, going home and spending time with their family, isn't leave, living a perfectly good life. But then, you know, they come across like a Tim Ferriss type book and they're like, oh, you know what? My life is terrible. Uh, yeah. And it wasn't until they were aware of of that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think you're exactly, exactly right. Satisfaction is one of the big themes in the book. And I think that satisfaction is not the same thing as what we think of success, right? And satisfaction can be finding meaning in all sorts of different things. Mm -hmm. I think where satisfaction comes is understanding that there is an intention behind what you're doing on a daily basis and creating the practices, the habits, the routines that make what you're doing on a daily basis more sustainable, maybe more enjoyable. and that and that satisfaction is really subversive in a way right because part of the story of capitalism and neoliberalism is making sure that we never feel satisfied because if we feel satisfied we will not want to buy whatever the world is selling us and our economy is driven on consumption and satisfied people tend to consume less, right? Fewer impulse purchases, fewer assuming that there are problems that need solutions in your life, right? Uh, less susceptibility. When you're satisfied, you are less susceptible. You are less susceptible to marketing messages that are trying to tell you that you have a problem. Mm-hmm. And so satisfaction is super subversive in that way. And seeking it out and recognizing how you can create it in your own life, uh, whether you're working a nine to five job, whether you're a freelancer, you have your own business, you're a stay at home parent, whatever it might be, where how are you nurturing satisfaction in your life instead of striving for something that you feel you lack, right? Or that you're not far enough along with. So there's that. And then the other thing, I think that you, 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 you kind of started asking about like, what is the, what is the solution? Or there's got to, Oh, you said, uh, there's got to be a way to break this pattern. And I I just finished reading a book called Self-Help Inc. Um, by a media theorist named Mickey McGee. And she was looking at self-help literature. This is back in 2004, 2005, looking at the self-help literature and saying, what is going on here? <laughs> what are the different messages that are being shared? What? Why are these messages landing with people? And is there a way to improve to approach personal growth, self-improvement, self-help in a way that is also making change collectively, societally, culturally? And 
even though she goes through all of these just terrible books with terrible messages about, um, you know, just conforming and becoming the, the, the best cog in the wheel you can become, right? Cog in the machine you can become. Yeah. Um, she gets to the end of the book and she's like, no, I think that there is a way to think about growth in a way that's political, in a way that's subversive, in a way that in- disrupts these patterns. Um, and I agree with her. And for me, that's what this book is, what my book is about, right? Yeah. It's trying to approach personal growth in a way that asks questions about what it means for society at large as well. And then ideally creating, uh, creating satisfying lives that allow us to start breaking some of these patterns to at first individually and then second collectively. Yeah. I, I want to bring back a clip from an old episode uh, that we had. Uh, it was Will Storr who wrote this book called Selfie. Uh, self, you know, why we mm-hmm. become self-obsessed and what it's doing to us. Take a listen. One of the things that all those conditions has in common is perfectionism, perfectionistic thinking. And one of the kind of academic clinical definitions of perfectionism is, is somebody that has unusually high expectations for success and kind of repeatedly fails to hit those markers for success. So they, they continually feel like they're a loser and they're a failure. And that's what our culture does these days. It sets an unusually high marker for success. It, it presents us with this um, perfect self on TV, on radio, on the internet, and in social media. And it says, if you're not this person, you have failed. So if you're not Beyonce, is the message. If you're not Steve Jobs, then you're doing something wrong. And that is incredibly toxic. It really, really is incredibly toxic because it's not true. What do you make of that? I mean, I think there's so many commonalities to some of what you're writing about in this book and what he says. Yeah, so I completely agree. And I purposefully did not read that book uh, as I was writing my book, which I could have easily. It's on my Kindle no. uh, because I knew that I, I knew there was going to be a lot of overlap and I was trying to like stay mostly pure in mm-hmm. my own thinking. I um, so I completely, completely agree. And um, coming back to this book, um, Self-Help Inc. Um, by McGee, she talks about the self having become belabored. And what she means by that is that not only do we go to work, whether that's in our home office or another office or at a store or a restaurant, we go to work and we do work for a set number of hours that we get paid for. But then when we come home, instead of having that time to pursue things that are satisfying to us, that pursue, to pursue things for the sake of pursuing them, we are engaged in all of these other behaviors, all of these other functions that are, quote unquote, working on ourselves. We are laboring on ourselves and it's become a an imperative of survival in this economy um, and, and in our political environment. And so uh, yes, to Storr's point, um, the expectations that are set for us are not only that the expectations I think are, you know, too high, just as he said, the expectation is, is that there is no achieving perfection, right? Because we know we're not ever going to be Beyonce, but we keep working because there's always another level to attain. And each time we set our sights on that next 
level, we're saying there's something wrong with me. There's something that I'm lacking. There's some deficit that I have. And there's something wrong with other people who aren't striving to that next level as well. And so you're constantly leaving people behind. Um, and yeah, and oh, I have so much to say about this. We could talk literally an hour about just that clip. <laughs> yeah. But um, yes, so to keep it short, I completely agree with him. And um I think that it is really important to start to notice all the things that we do on a daily basis that are in in essence working on ourselves in order to go to work and be a better worker or a better business owner or a better freelancer um and how much that mediates our sense of identity such that we only see ourselves through transactional terms. And that, again, is profoundly self-alienating um, and it's also unsatisfying. And so we get back into this pattern over and over again. Yeah. Well, in the interest of time, I, I want to hit one core concept that I think really, in my mind, was sort of the turning point uh, of the book where you ask this question of, you know, what does growth without striving look like? And you mm -hmm. say we strive because our economic salvation depends on it. We strive because we experience precarity and internalized albism. We strive to prove that we're value members of valuable members of society. We strive because we believe attaining more than our family or friends will make us happier. And we strive to live up to the questionable stories that self-help influencers turn into advice for good living. And, and funny enough, there's this clip from Jerry Colonna uh, that we actually just, mm. you know, weaved into with the, the most recent episode, The Hero's Journey to Wisdom. But I didn't think it'll make a perfect jump off point to, to talk about this concept. Um, take a listen. You strive without attaching your sense of self-worth to attainment of the goal so that you can be okay. So we strive because there's meaning and purpose in the striving. We strive because magic shit happens when we strive. But when we fail, we remember that we tried. And we pick ourselves up and we dust ourselves off and we try again. And that rising after failure is part of the glory of being a human being. To me, that's much more glorious than perfect attainment of every single wish, and dream, and goal. So, you know, I think that the the two messages together, both, you know, reading what you said and what he said, I, I was just kind of curious, like, it made me think, it's like, okay, what does growth without striving look like? Because I think that that to me is really kind of ultimately what this book is about. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, so in, when I talk about what growth without striving or talk about that question and, and kind of where it might lead us next, I also say that striving isn't necessarily a bad thing. There are ways that we use the word striving that I think are really productive and and enjoyable and uh, meaningful. And I think the way uh, Kelowna was using the word uh, is that. And like, I, I would agree with most of, of what he said there. And um, I think when I'm talking about striving, the way I talk about it in that chapter is that sense that this is a make or break thing. It is 
that striving where your identity is on the line. It's the striving where um, you feel like if you don't achieve this thing, everything is going to come crashing down around you. And I think that for a lot of people, there is truth in that, right? There's truth that we that we are living on the the edge whether it's that our health insurance isn't good enough and a and a medical emergency could bankrupt you whether it's that the business that you've owned for years and and run as live events you know can be completely upended because of a pandemic whether it's recognizing that you've got a great job but um you know there's not if if you're laid off there isn't going to be any severance because the the company's too early or there just isn't the cash you know we live in especially in the United States we live in a country where there is almost no safety net for those of us who are self-employed there is no safety net um and so the striving so easily turns into the quest for survival, right? The quest to stay just one step ahead of ruin. And that sounds bleak, I know. And also it's true, right? Um, so many of us don't have personal safety nets. We don't have a nest egg waiting in case there's an emergency. We don't have a job that we can fall back on. We don't have a partner that makes good money. There are so many people who are on the edge and that gets turned into striving for survival. Um, and so what I'm interested in with this question around what does growth without striving look like is looking at growth through the growth of meaning, the growth of fulfillment, the growth of satisfaction, the growth of knowledge and understanding. What does that look like? Because those are all things that I'd love to have more of in my life. And what does it look like if we can separate those things from our need and our and the activities that we do to survive, um, to, to stay uh, solvent in the world? And how do we, how do we approach personal growth? How do we approach challenge? How do we approach curiosity? How do we approach exploration without constantly reframing it through that transactional, uh, exchange value, you know, building your resume kind of lens? That's what I'm really interested in. And so I think that, you know, what Kelowna said and what I'm saying has, more overlap than not, even though we're using words differently. Um, and yeah, that that question still to this day is just, it gets me so excited thinking about what growth could be, what striving is or might be, um, and how we challenge ourselves in ways that are personally productive without necessarily being economically productive. Yeah. Wow. Uh, well, this has been really uh, mind-blowingly interesting because, you know, it feels to me like a deep rabbit hole. I mean, there's so many threads where we could talk for an hour on just one of those threads. Yes. So Yes. Hence the book. <laughs> yeah. Well, uh, 
I want to finish with my final question, which I, you know, uh, I know you've heard me ask before. Uh, what do you think it is that makes somebody or something unmistakable? I think what makes someone unmistakable is the pursuit of making sense of things, of looking at one's life, looking at one's work, looking at the way one is in relationship with others and making sense of it in a way that's unique to them, make meaning from those things in a way that's unique to them and be and being uh, aware of that process so that that you can invite other people into it as well. Mm. Amazing. Uh, well, I can't thank you enough for taking the time to join us. Where can people find out more about uh, you, your work, the book, and everything else you're up to? Yeah, so explorewhatworks.com is the website. Uh, you can find the book there. You can find me there. You can find the podcast there. Um, and you can listen to the What Works podcast wherever you're listening to Unmistakable Creative. Amazing. And for everybody listening, we will wrap the show with that. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Think of your favorite one-hit wonder. Or that overpriced toy your parents would never let you have. Or that TV show that no one else remembers because it was canceled way too soon. Now what if we could fix it? I'm Francesca Ramsey. And I'm DeLon Grant. And after 20 years of friendship, we are now hosting a new nostalgia podcast called Let Me Fix It. Each episode, we'll dig into our favorite celebrities, shows, and brands of yesteryear, and then imagine what it would take to repackage them for relevance today. Think of our show as an intervention, but with way less stakes. So subscribe to Let Me Fix It wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch. 
the skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here, like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this, AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy.